top of the evening, everyone. Welcome, lads and lassies, hebs and jeebies, to Dave's Gone By, a special Gaelic and Freilich edition of the show dedicated to the two big holidays this week, St. Patrick's Day and Purim. St. Paddy's happens tomorrow, March 17th. Purim is the next day. So if you're part Irish and part Jewish, the hangover you're going to have on Wednesday, I wouldn't wish on Bin Laden. Uh, Engineer Paul is actually waving because he is, in fact, and he is hungover. But it's going to be a really fun and happy show tonight. We've even reversed, I'm sure you've heard, our opening and closing, uh, closing music, turning the show upside down. Because not only do we have two of the giddiest holidays on the calendar to celebrate, but Thursday and God, you know, for a few weeks there, I was wondering if I'd ever get to say this again, but yes, Thursday, March 20th, is the first day of spring. Say that together with me, will you? The first day of spring. Feel it. Savor it. Oh, sure, we might see another snowstorm. April can be notorious for dumping half a foot on you when you've already got the shovel put away. But you know what? It doesn't matter, because it melts in three seconds, because it's spring. The birds are chirping, the power lines are humming, the crocuses are going into heat. Now, I usually don't make a big deal about change of season, because usually I don't mind winter much. You get a few really cold days, one or two big snowstorms, a lot of gray afternoons, but, you know, this isn't Key West. We have a variable climate, which keeps life interesting, but this winter... Pardon my French, but this freaking winter. I was tired of it before I had my first head cold. I was sick of it before I pulled my lower back shoveling. I was up to here with it before the stock market tanked, before the White House went anti-ballistic ballistic, before the North Koreans went psycho, and before Joe was really a millionaire. That was the winter of our discontent. And spring may bring a lot of inflation, unemployment, terrorist threats, and dead soldiers, but at least it'll be warm. Ledwith and OSI won't be getting all our kids' college education money. And finally, we'll be able to get from the store, to the parking lot, to the car, without needing a change of socks. A change of underwear, I can't guarantee. But what I can guarantee is that the next 85 minutes of our 24th show are going to be musical, zany, outlandish, and fun. No Soap Radio, as we'll have ourselves an Irish spring, with music by the Clancy Brothers, Sinead O'Connor, the Pogues, and we'll enjoy a Purim celebration with our special guest, Rabbi Saul Solomon. He's leader of Congregation Temple Sons of Bitches in Great Neck, New York, and he's going to regale us with a story of Purim, the whole Megillah, as it were, later on in the program. We'll also have the news gone by, of course, a look at events of the past week from a holidaysical perspective, plus lots more. In fact, if you go to our website, not the website for audio streaming, that's WGBB.com. That's where you can hear this show live if you're out of signal range. So if you know folks who might enjoy listening to Dave's Gone By, but they're in California or Oklahoma or Syosset, by all means, send them to WGBB.com where they can click the online radio button and hear the program loud and clear. But WGBB.com is the radio station's website. If you go to the Dave's Gone By website, hometown dot aol dot com forward slash Dave's gone by. You'll see photographs, archival information about the show, 
And special this week, the Dave's Gone By songbook. Lyrics to some of the tunes you'll hear on the program so you can sing along with the Irish drinking songs and Purim ditties. It's hometown.aol.com forward slash Dave's Gone By. No apostrophe. And if you forget the URL, just do a Google search for Dave's Gone By, and we're right up top. So pour yourself a glass of Manischewitz Extra Sweet with a Guinness Chaser, and get ready to sing along with Dave's Gone By. I'm Dave. By the way, Dave Lefkowitz, radio personality, theater critic, journalist, and songwriter. And every Sunday night at 7.30, my show aims to be an eclectic mix of silly talk, smart talk, drunken parades, and shrunken charades. And a quick reminder, tonight, uh, from 10 to 11, a very last-minute thing, Dave's gone again. I'll be on for uh, another hour. So my show will end at 9. There's a preacher screaming and ranting who is, believe it or not, not me, between 9 and 10. And then I'll come back on for an hour. I have no idea what I'm going to do. It's going to be a totally different sort of a thing, very last minute, but please tune in. I'll also remind everybody that this program is rated DGB 13, which means I will probably say or do 13 things that will make you puke on your shoes. I won't say anything that bad. Nothing to make Aaron go brach, but... If you're afraid of barfing on your children's shoes, you might want to monitor the radio listening over the next hour and a half. So keep it here at 1240 AM, WGBB Freeport, for Dave's Gone By. We'll get Blarney stoned right after this. Oh, if you're a man who can't get a date, if you're a girl who can't find a mate, if you stay home and master yourself, it's time for a nice date. And Friday nights at 6 p.m. is that bongy lassie, bongy de Graham, hosting a show for singles, looking to meet, greet, and get pissing drunk. For talk about sex and relationships, tune in Fridays at 6 for Long Island's dating on WJBB. If you want to meet a boy or girl, then give your radio dial a twirl, drink a pint, get ready to hurl, it's time for an ice dating. It's time for an ice dating. Welcome back to Dave's Gone By. Time to begin our St. Patrick's Day celebration. Probably the best way to start is to figure out who was St. Patrick anyway. Heavy drinker, cathedral builder, parade freak? Nope, none of the above, as far as we know. The freaky thing is, he wasn't even an Irishman. Patrick was born in 387 A.D. to Calpurnius and Conchessa something or other in Kilpatrick, which is a district in Scotland. Paddy spent his first 16 years in Scotland and then pushed north into the Emerald Isle until he was dragged there by Irish marauders. For six years, he was forced to be a shepherd for a druid priest. Funny, he didn't look druish, but he was a stern and cruel master. Not surprisingly, Patrick spent most of his free time praying. Eventually, an angel appeared to him and told him to run away, which he did. He sailed off and wound up in a series of English and French monasteries, unlearning the druid stuff and relearning the Catholic doctrine. After an apprenticeship with Saint-Germain, Patrick was made a full priest. Everything was fine, but for some reason, he became homesick for Ireland. As luck would have it, Saint-Germain recommended Patrick to Pope Celestine I, who was itching to bring all Ireland together under Catholicism. Patrick, said the Pope, you the man. And Patrick was soon on his way back to the place he escaped from. Almost as soon as he got there, he was greeted by Dichu, a druid warlord. Dichu was going to slice Patrick into potato salad, but miracle of miracles, his arm froze. 
Lucky for Patrick, it was the arm with the sword in it. And Dichu didn't get unparalyzed until he swore his allegiance to Paddy. That was the first of many miracles Patrick supposedly performed. And talk about a Hollywood moment. In his travels, Patrick soon happened upon his old master's place. Except it was up in flames. The Druid priest was so upset about seeing his former slave come back victorious, he set his own house on fire and jumped into it. Strangely, Patrick did not perform a miracle to save his ass. He did soon meet his own Sancho Panza in the person of Benin, son of a Druid chief who was captivated by Patrick and became his squire. And who knows, maybe something a little more personal? But seriously, Patrick and his followers made their way to a huge Easter Sunday gathering by the Druid chieftains. They tried to block Patrick's parade with spells and incantations, even sending a big gray cloud up, presumably to put Patrick in a gloomy, non-world-conquering mood. But meek little Patrick said a prayer, and sunshine filled the sky. For their last trick, Lochru, the arch-druid, rose high in the air. But humble, sweet, easy-going Patrick knelt in prayer, and sent Lochru down, smashing him to pieces on a rock. Convinced, all the chieftains now said, Hey, Patrick, can we commit 30,000 men to your next parade? To show good faith, Patrick plucked a three-leaf clover and used it to explain the Holy Trinity. He was then granted permission to spread his gospel all over Ireland, which he did for many years. One of his prayers, his greatest hit, as it were, was known as St. Patrick's Breastplate, and it includes this rather nice verse. I bind to myself today the power of heaven, the light of the sun, the brightness of the moon, the splendor of fire, the flashing of lightning, the swiftness of wind, the depth of sea, the stability of earth, the compactness of rocks. I believe the trinity in the unity, the creator of the universe. So he preached and preached, one time, in the county of Roscommon, he and his followers were out praying near a stream when the king's daughters came by for a bath. They asked whether he was friend or foe, real or phantom. Instead of asking for their phone numbers, Patrick chided them for their questions and gave them a lecture. The girls then said, Teach us most carefully, and we will do whatsoever you shall say to us. And after the spanking, the oral sex. And St. Patrick chided them again, this time for quoting a Monty Python movie. But the girls were ready to convert, dressed in white, and baptized. Then they said they wanted to see the face of Jesus. Patrick replied, Sorry, no can do, unless you're ready to die. They said, Okay. He gave them the Eucharist and sacrificed them. One assumes that if they did see and talk to Christ, he would have said, You know, girls, there was no rush. You could have seen my face when you were 80. But then the girls got all huffy and said, Hey, you're the son of God. You could have warned us. And Jesus said, Don't blame me. I told Patrick. Or did I tell Augustine? Uh-oh. Anyway, by the mid-400s, Patrick was roaming from town to town, inaugurating cathedrals and generally being beatific. When he arrived at Leicester, his chariot driver overheard a plot to assassinate his boss. He changed places in the vehicle with Patrick and for his troubles took a spear through the heart. Patrick continued on to Munster, probably by Amtrak, and there baptized the king's son. So moved was Paddy by the ceremony that he leaned on his crozier, whatever that is, 
and accidentally pierced the kid's foot. Bleeding profusely and in excruciating pain, the kid gritted his teeth and didn't say a word. After the baptism, Patrick said, Why didn't you tell me? The kid said, Oh no, I thought it was part of the ceremony. So Patrick went to other places in Ireland, where I guess he met more relentlessly dopey disciples. He must have known a few things, however, since he lived to be 106, and he died on March 17, 493 A.D., for all the pomp and parades, St. Patrick's Day is actually a memorial to his death. Then again, you know how Irish wakes tend to be. But that's the story of humble Patricius, well, according to the New Advent Encyclopedia, anyway. And what was St. Patrick singing when he received the final sacrament? Might have been a hymn, might have been a Latin lament, or might have been this. I've been to Ireland just once in my life, a couple of years ago. My wife Joyce and I went down as part of a mini-convention, and we stayed mostly in Dublin with a side trip to Kilkenny. So, of course, I drove Joyce crazy all day, saying, Oh my God, they killed Kenny! Until she nearly killed me. But Ireland was beautiful, the outskirts especially. I wish we had gone more afield, because Dublin got a little cloistering after a while, too loud, too narrow, and commerce-filled, like a less multi-ethnic New York with more drunks and worse food. It's not that the food in Ireland is as bad as they say it is. Of course, you can find nice restaurants and the like, but it really is a pub city. People don't really go to bars in America to eat. They knock down a few beers, maybe have some pretzels, and on occasion might order a burger or some hot wings. But unless you count restauranty places like Houlihan's or Beefsteak Charlie, pubs aren't lunch venues for us Yanks, but they remain the meeting places and eating places in Ireland. Last week or two weeks ago, I mentioned that they're actually banning smoking 
in Irish pubs. At first, it sounds like a good idea, but if you can't smoke in a dimly lit bar, where can you light up? And I don't recall minding people puffing away while we were eating in Dublin. What I did mind was the same cheese and beef sandwiches in every bloody pub in the city. If you wonder why the Irish were never able to defeat the English in full battle, it's because they were all loaded down with greasy food and constipated ten pounds above their weight. And yes, alcohol is the beverage of choice there. I know it's a stereotype, but we did see significant vomiting and stumbling all weekend long. And we were in a rather nice, modest hotel, Jury's Christchurch, in the Temple Bar District, a quarter mile from Trinity College and their St. Patrick's Cathedral. And early Sunday morning, we'd be awakened, not by church bells, not by the song of the curlews in the trees, but by metal clanging against pavement as one after the other, empty keg after empty keg, got hauled out of the hotel restaurant and tossed into the courtyard. I swear, if the U.S. used as much oil as the Irish used Guinness, gasoline would be $5 a gallon. I'm a rambler, I'm a gambler, I'm a long ways from home. And if you don't like me, well, leave me alone. I'll eat when I'm hungry, I'll drink when I'm dry. And the moonshine don't kill me, I'll live till I die. I've been a moonshiner for many a year. I've spent all my money on whiskey and beer. I'll go to some hollow, I'll set up my still. And I'll make you a gallon for a ten shilling bill. I'm a gambler, I'm a long ways from home. If you don't like me, well, leave me alone. I'll eat when I'm hungry, I'll drink when I'm dry. And the moonshine don't kill me, I'll live till I die. I'll go to some hollow in this country. Ten gallons of wash I can go on the spree. No women to follow, no world is all mine. I love none so well as I love the moonshine. I'm a rambler, I'm a gambler, I'm a long ways from home. And if you don't like me, well, leave me alone. I hate when I'm hungry, I'll drink when I'm dry. And a moonshine don't kill me, I live till I die. Oh, moonshine, dear moonshine, oh, how I love thee. You kill me, old father, but I you try me. Now bless all moonshiners and bless all moonshine. Their bread smells as sweet as the dew on the vine. The Clancy Brothers on Dave's Gone By with The Moonshiner from one of their gazillion reprocessed, repackaged Greatest Hits albums. Such a wonderful band. I grew up listening to them. My father was a big fan going back probably to when they were on Ed Sullivan in those years. He had all their albums, which he listened to again and again, and I ended up listening to as much as he did. We saw them in concert a good half-dozen times, always terrific. I recall one time there was a heckler in the audience. Remember, they were invariably coming to New York around St. Patrick's time, so there'd always be people in the crowd a little more convivial than they ought to be at Carnegie or Avery Fisher Hall, and this one guy was getting pretty obnoxious, calling out requests, yelling stuff, and Tom Clancy, the short, stocky one, in many ways the spirit of the group, and no relation, by the way, to the Tom Clancy of spy novel fame, Tom Clancy of the Clancy Brothers, got tired of this guy shouting over his banter and annoying everyone, 
so he looked up in the balcony and said, Hey, shut up or I'll come up there and sit on you, which led to a huge ovation, and the guy did mellow out a little after that. Either that or security ejected him. But it really was great fun seeing the Clancy's in person, and even their later records on small labels with sometimes some different shifting personnel had a lot of good stuff on them. What angers me about the band is just how shoddily their catalog has been treated by Columbia Records. Most of their albums I would consider classics of Irish or even just popular music, and yet only about four or five of their LPs have been reissued properly on CD. And there are half a dozen other superb records, including Homeboy's Home, Freedom's Sons, Sing of the Sea, Flowers in the Valley, which was my favorite growing up. If you think the Pogues do a good version of Dirty Old Town, you really ought to listen to the Clancy's rendition on Flowers in the Valley. And these records have all sat in the vaults of CBS Columbia since the CD revolution. God knows why. And what's worse, a whole portion of the Clancy's early recordings must have snuck into the public domain because all these no-name CD labels have released so-called Best of Clancy Brothers collections and Essential Clancy Brothers compilations. They've run higgledy-piggledy through the early years, most of them drawing on recordings never even originally released. While it's nice to have this rare material available to collectors, calling it the cream of the crop is like releasing Bob Dylan's 1961 Gaslight tapes and calling them Dylan's Golden Greats. At the same time, Sony slash CBS itself keeps cannibalizing the archives to make its own best of discs. They're also a mixed bag, extremely arbitrary, often redundant. One collection will differ from another by only five or six songs, and they still refuse to release the treasure trove of great original Clancy Brothers albums. So, for this St. Patrick's Day, I, like St. Patricius chastising the Druids, call out Sony Music and say, Stop being heathens with the Clancy Brothers music! Give us all the wonderful recordings they made throughout the 60s into the early 70s. Make a giant box set if you must, like you do for everything else. And then, only then, if you want to cannibalize them K-Tel style, be our guest. As I was walking down London Road, I came to Paddy West House. He gave me a feed of American hash and he called it Liverpool Scouse. Ship that's a wanton hands and honor you'll quickly sign. The major's a tyrant, the boatswain's worse, but she will suit you fine. But on your dungry jacket and walk up looking your best and tell them that you're a poor sailor lad and came from anywhere.
nations far to man His wife she stood in the doorway With a bucket in her hand And Patty cried out Now let her rip And she flung the water our way Say and blew up your horse To cancel boys She's taken in the spray Cause me pants and me undies were covered with crap Covered with crap, covered with crap I'll bring me a dish towel, I'm covered with crap I went to the doctor, he gave me a salve But that only worsened the ailment I have Me bowels keep churning all night and all day To drive all the people of Dublin away Away they would say, their arms they would flap from the stink and the stench of me covered with crap Covered with crap, covered with crap I cannot wear white cause I'm covered with crap I called up the daughter of old Mrs. Cloyne And over the phone, well she liked me just boing I hoped that I'd soon get a taste of a join But alas, I I had to take her out to dine we entered the restaurant without a mishap And greeted the mater de quite a nice chap But soon he said You there, you'll not eat a scrap You'll get us closed down Cause you're covered with crap Covered with crap Covered with crap Each smear brings a tear When you're covered with crap Take it! I'm an old man, my time has grown thin I've no time for sailing, nor sporting, nor sin I wait for me heavenly rest to begin And hope that St. Peter will let this fool in But this poor fool knows hope is only a trap And I'm hearing those pearly gates close with a snap Cause who wants an angel with poop in his lap? Brown wings and a halo all covered with crap Covered with crap Covered with crap, eternity beckons all covered with crap. Ah, uh, nothing like a. 
speech therapy to put a tear in your eye and a lump in your throat, which is exactly what happens when you retch, but that's perfectly acceptable St. Patrick's Day behavior, especially here on Dave's Gone By as we do our own salute to the Emerald Isle. My wife and I did have many, we didn't have many extraordinary adventures in Ireland. We saw a lot of theater, did a lot of walking around and sightseeing, ate a lot of shepherd's pies and things in brown sauce. The grass really is greener over there, and if you can get past the pollution, the Dublin air does have a certain snap to it. But I have no great travel stories to tell, except one. Although Dublin is certainly getting commercialized with a tremendous number of chain stores and international retailers, you still do get the occasional old-fashioned, dinky little shop. Well, one place we noticed was a tiny bitty store, sort of a convenience nook, the kind of place where, if it were in New York, you'd buy a Lago ticket, a newspaper, maybe some candy or a children's toy. So Joyce and I look in the window, and it's pretty dingy, underlit, Not especially modern or clean-looking, but hey, a candy or a soda, what's the difference? My wife and I go in, and the second we opened the door and entered the store, we were hit with a stench, an indescribable smell. No, wait, I will describe it. It was like incredibly concentrated cat urine, years and years of it, with a sewage bouquet and just a hint of excrement. Not surprisingly, we were the only people in the store. In fact, we we didn't even see the owner. And we were just about to turn around and leave when this little old man, like an Irish Hans Molman type, only not so old and shriveled, he says, can I help you? And I was about to say, can we help you? And rather than be rude, you know, we went rummaging and bought some trinket. I was going to buy a chocolate sweet, and Joyce gave me this look and whispered, you're not buying that here. Me, being a middle-aged Jewish man, I'll eat anything, so I'm like, it's a chocolate. It's not like he rolled it around on the floor. But she made me put it back, and we paid for whatever it was we did buy. The whole thing took about a minute or two, but my God, being able to open the door and step out into a cool Irish drizzle was rather heavenly. And after we got through laughing, Joyce and I realized we had experienced something really amazing, especially when it dawned on us that in this little store that just reeked of cat pee. There was no cat. There wasn't an animal of any kind. And I started to wonder, first of all, whether the whole experience was real. You know, when it's so bizarre, so strange yet familiar, that minutes after it happens, it already feels like a dream. And I began to ponder whether this man was some kind of local legend a leprechaun of some sort, or just an amazing fellow all the kids point to, going, going to store, it stinks. How long has he been in there? I don't know, but me mum and dad remember him. They say he never leaves. So, I was, of course, taken with this gentleman. I never got his name, but I nicknamed him for posterity, Seamus the Urine Man. And between his store and our hotel, which was two or three blocks away, I had composed an impromptu song about the experience, and so I give you, and the world, Seamus the Urine Man. Seamus the Urine Man, the Urine Urine Man, 
There's a shop in Dublin town, you should stop and look around. You'll find candy, toys and smokes, and a gentle Irish bloke. She must the urine man, the urine, urine man. Though he is a fine old soul, his bladder he cannot control. So lift your nose and sniff the air. You'll smell something mighty queer. She must the urine man, the urine, urine man. When old Seamus takes a whiz, he'll stand and whiz wherever he is. Seamus the urine man, the urine, urine man. Seamus is a merry fellow, splashing in his pool of yellow. Never does he take a break. He'll make and make and make and make and make and make. Seamus the urine man, the urine, urine man. He's guaranteed to amuse. Stand too close or soak your shoes. Seamus the urine man, the urine, urine man. When old Seamus eats an egg, York starts running down his leg. He don't care for fame or money. Long as he's all warm and runny. They call him yellow fellow. Quite a stink. Seamus the urine man, the urine, urine man. Best to back away a little, else you'll get a spray of piddle. He gets wetter than the navy, shouting out his bladder gravy. Seamus the urine man, the urine, urine man. Every night he prays to Jesus to renew his enuresis. He lies down to rest his head and wakes up in the water bed. Seamus the urine man, the urine, urine man. Seamus the urine man, the urine, urine man. An Irish hero for the ages, Seamus the urine man. WGVB AM 1240 Freeport. We're honoring St. Patrick's Day and all things Irish on this segment of Dave's Gone By. I don't want to get into the whole politics of the holiday. I'm not here to dwell on the troubles. I think Ireland should be free from English rule, but at the same time, I was pretty ticked off at the IRA when they started aligning themselves with the PLO a few years ago. And as far as who should or shouldn't march in the St. Patrick's Day parade back at home... Who cares? No, seriously. Who cares? But seriously, if I did care, I believe that people could march under their own banner and say what they want to say, so long as it isn't offensive or obscene against the community, blah, blah, blah. At the same time, if they put themselves out like that, they have to be willing to withstand the occasional brickbat, figurative, of course, of people who don't agree. If homosexuals want to march in the St. Patrick's Day parade as gays who are Gaelic, or just gays who like and support Ireland, that's their right. More power to them. If the occasional idiot wants to shout at them about the Bible and abominations, that's his right too, so long as there's no violence or unseemly behavior. Granted, if the Ku Klux Klan or NAMBLA wanted to march in sympathy under their own banner, I'm not crazy about that being legal, and maybe I'd turn my head if a few beer bottles flew their way. But you either include every reasonable group who wants to march proudly under your banner, or you risk alienating whole clumps of comrades. They say no man is an island, no Ireland is an island either.
Renee O'Connor from her Gospel Oak CD, probably the best thing she's done since her iconic second album. Certainly my strongest connection to Ireland comes through the music. The Clancy's, the Chieftains, Van Morrison, Sinead, the Pogues, the Waterboys, plus the Irish influence on music from the British Isles, on everyone from the Beatles to Richard Thompson to Robin Hitchcock. So we'll bid Slen to Dublin's Fair City with one more song. It's from an honorary Irishman, since he tossed back the Queen's OBE, John Lennon, from the Sometime in New York City collection, kind of a raw recording because you can hear a stray cat howling in the background and, oh, sorry, that's Yoko. But seriously, get ready to sing along with Mr. and Mrs. Lennon on the ballad, The Luck of the Irish. Saturday night, before you go out and get blowing stinking drunk, 
tune in to WJBB and listen to Don Lewis hosting Entertainment Long Island, 5.30pm. It's all about getting started as a performer, as a musician or an actor, or one of them fine girls at the bar who spits ping pong balls as of herself. There's interviews and live music with Eddie Hogg and the Moonshiners, best band name ever, so catch all the fun Saturdays 5.30, because without entertainment, the world would be an empty glass. Fill her up, boys, and don't be English with a scotch. Welcome back to Dave's Gone By. It's 8.21pm or thereabouts on Sunday night and time for the news gone by. A look at events of the past week from a shamrockin' perspective. In pre-war news, on Tuesday, the U.S. detonated the biggest conventional bomb in the history of the world. This summer, the biggest unconventional bomb is expected when Madonna stars in her next movie. In other military news, a helicopter crash on Tuesday in Watertown, New York, killed 11 of the 13 soldiers on board. It's still not known why the Black Hawk went down, but the Navy admits the soldiers were involved in war training. What I don't understand about the crash is, why would you train your soldiers to do that? In other world news, the Prime Minister of Serbia was assassinated by snipers Wednesday, Warlords still loyal to Slobodan Milosevic are likely responsible. They apparently blamed Prime Minister Jinjic for being too pro-Western and for allowing Milosevic to be extradited for war crimes. Serbia is now in a state of emergency, the country on the verge of chaos and violent power struggle. The United States is expected to take swift action after we get through dealing with Iraq, Iran, North Korea, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, France, Yemen, Qatar, Cuba, China, Russia, Mexico, and Luxembourg. While preparing to send American teenagers off to war, the House of Representatives struck its own blow for democracy this week. Angered that France refuses to go along with the U.S. attack on Iraq, Lawmakers have forced the House cafeteria to change the name of its French fries and French toast. Republicans Bob Ney and Walter Jones put signs at the register reading Freedom Fries and Freedom Toast. This led supermarkets in France to rename American cheese after the two senators. From now on, it will be called Moron Cheese. And it's a moron named Moran... His remarks brought down a a hailstorm of condemnation from Republican and Democratic politicos. They were enraged over Moran's implication that some kind of Jewish cabal in Washington was beating the drum for war and leading Bush by the nose into it. Pushed to explain his comments and recant, Moran apologized but later told the journalist, quote, It's unhealthy for the American political process for any group within our society to be able to decide who should and who shouldn't represent a constituency. So much for an apology. Leaving aside that poll after poll and story after story has shown that Jews across the country are split over the war, and that even those who support the war, like yours truly, are quite anxious and ambivalent about it, and that Jews only wish we had a lobby that could pull the strings of the president the way oil companies and giant corporations do. Leaving all that aside, what really disgusts me about the whole situation is not so much Moran's remarks. Think about it. There are 5.2 million Jews in the United States. That's less than 2% of the population and falling. So, if our politicians want to create the illusion of a monster voting bloc and a lobby so influential the president is in its pocket, 
That's not such a bad thing, especially in this case, because if the war goes quickly and well, 12 months from now, when we're massing troops in Kaesong, we'll all be wondering, why was everybody so upset about killing that dictator in Iraq? No, what frosts me about the James Moran controversy is the incredibly sleazy backpedaling and waste of energy shown by both parties, Democrat and Republican. As soon as Moran's comments were revealed, the Republicans and writers in the New York Post and the like were saying, gee, how come the Democrats haven't fired him? They got all huffy when Trent Lott made those remarks about Strom Thurmond, but now one of their boys is in Dutch and they're acting like friends. I mean, these elephant-brained editorials were being written less than 24 hours after the news broke. The saliva hadn't even dried on James Moran's foot yet. And as it happens, by then, the Democrats were already gathering steam to censure the guy and force him to step down from his leadership position of the mid-Atlantic states, which he did. So, any Republican hogwash about a double standard goes right out the window. In fact, several Democratic representatives also signed a letter stating they would not support Moran's bid for re-election in 2004. However, and here's where the donkeys get kicked in the ass, Four of those signatories had signed a very different letter last October. It was a letter to major Jewish constituents saying that Moran was a powerful pro-Jewish force in the House. It read that Moran was, quote, a strong supporter of Israel's right to security and sovereignty, unquote, which would be fine if the politicians believed it at the time, but they didn't. Most of the signees of that October missive admit that they clearly knew Moran was harsh on Israel and ever so slightly anti-Semitic. Barney Frank, a guy who should know a few things about fighting bias, told reporters, quote, I signed the letter because I think it's very important that we have a Congress that's democratic. Congressman Howard Berman said Moran approached him in an elevator last fall and asked him to sign on. Says Berman, quote, I thought within a very short time after I signed that letter, that I had done a very stupid thing. I didn't need the more recent comments con to convince me that I made a mistake." Unquote. In other words, these Democratic politicians knowingly signed a letter saying James Moran was a strong friend of Israel while being quite aware that he was an anti-Israel bigot. They did it only because he was a Democrat and they were struggling to keep the Democratic Party neck and neck with the Republican majority. If you want to know why people hate politics, why no one trusts politicians, and why millions of people don't even bother to vote, look no further than the Moran miss for ample reason why we need to take down some of our own leaders before we go mucking about with dictators across the sea. Huh. On the safety front, airport security screeners have seized nearly 5 million items since 9-11. Among the objects passengers tried to board or stow were more than a million guns, a million and a half knives, 15,000 clubs, a circular saw, and 40,000 box cutters. Obviously, travelers need to use more common sense when flying the friendly skies, but I think airport personnel is wasting a lot of energy. No need to take away all these personal items, just confiscate all the turbans and safety will follow. In a related story, a man with a brain injury who was arrested two miles from the White House with a car full of guns and ammunition has been allowed to return home. 33-year-old Jeffrey Cloutier pled guilty 
to carrying a pistol without a license and owning both an illegal firearm and ammo. Cloutier told the authorities he wanted to help kill terrorists in exchange for treatment of his headaches on condition that he take his medication and stay away from Washington, D.C., the man was given three months probation and released. Unfortunately, the judge's brain injury will apparently go untreated. In medical news, after eight years of legal struggle, the Senate has voted for a ban on partial birth abortions. In the controversial procedure, the doctor partially removes the fetus from the uterus. Then he punctures the skull so he can suck the brain out and pull the rest of the fetus through the birth canal. Four times the House tried to ban it. Twice the Senate passed it, only to be vetoed by then-President Bill Clinton, assumedly to protect his interns. With the bill being green-lighted this time, the White House will surely let it stand. It is surprising that President Bush is so strongly against partial birth abortion, since he himself has proved to be a full-term abortion. To his credit, though, President Bush did sign something good into law this week, a national do-not-call registry, administered by the FTC and funded, however unwillingly, by telemarketers. Consumers can get on the list for free, and marketers would have to check the list every three months to find out who doesn't want to be called. Those in violation, are you listening, Lomans? Those in violation could be fined up to $11,000 per advertising call. On a separate list, people can also be fined for making phone calls like, uh, is this Lenora? Uh, you probably haven't noticed me, but I sit behind you in math class. Uh, I was wondering what you were doing this weekend. In fact, just mentioning the phrase math class is subject to a fine and up to three years in prison. Speaking of high school, three different versions of the GED exam were stolen from a college in Tucson, Arizona. This forced the entire state to delay testing for a month and could possibly derail high school equivalency testing all over the country. The tests were taken from a locked file cabinet in Pima Community College, and the suspects could very well include A. Anxious students, B. A disgruntled teacher, C. Mercenary thieves, D. An ambitious janitor, E. B and D, but not A and C, F. A and B approaching C, but ultimately settling for D, and G. None of the above. The theft did cause administrators to tackle the famous question, is there life after high school? The answer, yes. In fact, there's 25 to life when they catch the guys who did this. In local crime news, 42-year-old Patrick Smith was arrested while gazing into the window of a bank he had recently robbed. If that sounds bizarre, it gets even weirder. As cops were putting the cuffs on him, they realized he had breasts. Turns out, in a sort of dog day afternoon twist, Mr. Smith, who calls himself Peaches was robbing banks to pay for hormone medication necessary to maintain, quote, a female physique. Though he's never had surgery, Smith described himself as a transsexual, and he wore heavy overcoats during his many bank robberies to hide his boobs. The good news is that once Smith gets to prison, whether or not he'll physically look like a woman, he will be treated like one. In medical news, a state Supreme Court judge ruled that doctors don't have to give 92-year-old Margaret Russell anything more to eat than water. 
The woman suffered two strokes in 2000, but before she became incapacitated, she signed a bunch of end-of-life instruction papers. She wrote that if she was ever in a medical state where there was no hope of recovery, she didn't want any life-sustaining procedures. Her guardian and the judge interpreted this to mean that even food or vitamins constituted life-prolonging nourishment. So, for the past five weeks or so, all she's gotten is water. Her family says the woman is being starved to death. Doctors at the nursing home don't dispute that, though they do say that before the stroke, the woman ate a vegetable every night. But then he was moved to a different room. From doctors not doing enough, we turn to doctors doing too much. California Governor Gray Davis issued an apology this week to 19,000 residents forcibly sterilized over the years as part of the eugenics movement. The involuntary sterilization of mentally ill people as a way of cleaning up the gene pool was made legal in 1909 and upheld as constitutional by the Supreme Court in 1927. In a statement, Governor Davis said, quote, Our hearts are heavy for the pain caused by eugenics. It was a sad and regrettable chapter in the state's history, unquote. Asked if there would be monetary reparations for the victims, Davis said, Yes, millions of dollars, but only to their children. Speaking of victims, a 16-year-old boy who was sodomized while he was attending All-Star Baseball Camp was awarded $10 million in damages. The jury held that the camp itself was partially responsible for the 1999 assault, and they could be liable for up to $3.5 million. Asked about that sum, the head counselor at the baseball camp said he regretted that the incident happened, but it was partially the kid's fault. He choked up on the wrong bat, and his balls went foul. Well, the best little whorehouse in Nevada is no more. Three years after seizing the property of the world-famous Mustang Ranch, government officials planned to demolish the site. They say it would cost too much to renovate. The feds had seized the ranch in 1999 and convicted the owners on fraud and racketeering charges. Opened illegally in 1967, Mustang Ranch went legit in 1971 when prostitution was legalized in 12 Nevada counties. No word on what will be built on the land where the former whorehouse now stands. Some are saying a shelter for battered women. Others are saying a center for education about wild horses. Well, I say, if they don't want to turn it into another legal bordello, at least make it a McDonald's. That way, men can still go there and get what they're accustomed to, a happy meal that smells fishy and has hair all over it. In local news, under the direction of teacher Paul Warwick, the children of Hewlett Elementary School in Long Island celebrated Black History Month by staging a half-hour play on the life of Dr. Martin Luther King. According to the Five Towns Forum newspaper, the show featured patriotic songs, gospel numbers, and speeches dedicated to the great African-American leader. The children of Hewlett Harbor found it a very educational experience since most had never seen a black person before. Their parents loved the show. In fact, they were so moved, they all vowed to construct rain canopies over their service entrances. In music news, trying to prove that guys can still rock well into middle age, a band out of Huntington has released a new CD. They're called the Defibrillators, and apparently they play good, solid rock and roll with lyrics that spoof getting older, such as, I OD'd on Viagra, and I can't do it again. 
Their website aims for geriatric laughs. A blurb there says the band initially met at the Golden Requiem Nursing and Rehabilitation Center in 2001. Having tired of shuffleboard and bingo, they began singing and banging on tables, pots and pans, as one musician chimed in on the day room piano. Soon, the whole room was up and dancing to their rockin' sounds. Several residents became so excited that a doctor had to wheel in the portable defibrillator to get them up and dancing again, unquote. The band plays all over Long Island, but right now they're in China on a special concert tour for... Oh, uh, gosh, I'm sorry, I got confused. That was the blurb for the Rolling Stones. In further geriatric music news, Bob Dylan's Forever Young has been used to sell Apple computers, and I've even seen, this is true, a Scandinavian print ad where he himself is in the ad wearing a red helmet and shilling for Husqvarna brand chainsaws. But... Everybody did a double take this week when a Bob Dylan tune was used as background music for Victoria's Secret commercial. Did they use Lay Lady Lay? No. Tonight I'll be staying here with you? No. Not even Sweetheart Like You or You Angel You? No. Sexy supermodels flaunting their pulchritude to the sound of this. I'm walking. The streets that I did Walking Walking with you in my head My feet are so tired My brain is so wide And the clouds are weeping Did I Hear someone tell a lie Nothing like looking at hot women in sheer lingerie while a 61-year-old man sings, I'm sick. I'm walking through streets like I did. I still think it's a Viagra commercial disguised as a Victoria's Secret ad. And couldn't the director have picked a more appropriate Bob Dylan tune for the occasion? Maybe Wiggle Wiggle or Country Pie or the basement tape number Get Your Rocks Off. Then again, if the lingerie is being shipped via Amazon.com, they could also use Nothing Was Delivered. Finishing up this pre-Purim news gone by with a pair of happy stories 
Congratulations, of course, to the Smart family in Salt Lake City. 15-year-old Elizabeth Smart was found alive and assumedly well after being missing and presumed dead for more than nine months. Brian David Mitchell, a homeless polygamist nicknamed Emmanuel, abducted the girl as part of a scheme to get six more wives. The irony is that all those months, Mitchell, his current wife, and young Elizabeth stayed only a couple of miles from the girl's family. Elizabeth was apparently brainwashed because she had ample opportunity to escape. And even when the police found her, she told them, I'm not that smart girl. (laughs) She wasn't kidding. As a side note, when Emmanuel would take Elizabeth out on the town, he made her wear a scarf, a wig, and a veil. Asked why no one saw behind the subterfuge, the police chief said, We could tell it was a disguise. We just thought she was one of Michael Jackson's kids. Congratulations to Christopher Reeve, who underwent experimental surgery to implant a device that now allows him to breathe for up to two hours without using a ventilator. The procedure, performed at university hospitals in Cleveland, not only allows him to speak more normally, but he's also regained his sense of smell. Unfortunately, as soon as he got a whiff of Cleveland, Reeve said, Take it out! Take it out! And that's the news gone by for March 16th, 2003. Please send your comments, opinions, and GED scores to Dave's Gone By, P.O. Box 62, Ulet, New York, 11557-0062, or email us at davesgoneby at aol.com. We reserve the right to read your letter on the air and possibly set it to music, name withheld upon request. That's Dave's Gone By, no apostrophe, at AOL.com or snail mail, Box 62, Hewlett, New York, 11557-0062. Please, no female hormones. I'm allergic. Shalom, shalom, ubracha, everyone, and Chag Sameach, happy Purim to all of you. Oy, it was such a long, miserable, goyish winter. It's time we had a little happiness in our lives. A day of craziness, drinking, eating of sweets, and turning the whole world toihu vabohu, topsy-toiby, to celebrate our continued survival on the planet. I'm Rabbi Saul Solomon of Temple Sons of Bitches in Great Neck, New York, and I want to thank Dave Lefkowitz, the host of Dave's Gone By, for having me back on the show. Last time I was here in December for another happy holiday, Hanukkah, which too many secular Jews mistake for just being a Yiddish version of Christmas. Well, now all I hear is people calling Purim a Hebraic adaptation of Halloween. Toy! Wrong and wrong again! Purim is its own happy holiday. It doesn't need John Carpenter for validation. And the story of Purim in a nutshell is this. The king of Persia got angry at his first wife, so he killed her. Single again, he went looking around for a shiksa goddess to be wife number two. Just like in Cinderella, he found her. Only she wasn't what he thought she was. Her name was Esther, and she was being raised by her uncle Mordechai. And Mordechai told her, Look, when you meet the king, be on the safe side. Don't tell him you're Jewish. No, who then, said Esther. I don't know, say a Presbyterian, and for God's sakes, don't show him your Lord and Taylor gift certificate. So Esther played it cool, and soon enough, she was queen of the land. And Uncle Mordechai visited Esther often, and he kept reminding her, Remember, if you get your nails done more than three times a week, he's going to suspect. Mordechai even foiled an assassination attempt on the king by two of his servants. 
Mori won Esther, Esther won her husband, and the plotters were hanged. So Mordechai and Esther were doing fine. Except Esther was not the king's chief advisor. That position went to a fellow in the Amalek tribe, a man by the name of Haman. Yes, Haman. Haman was a mother. Yes, indeed. A wicked man, a vain man, as the king's Henry Kissinger, he expected everybody to bow down to him, including Esther's uncle Mordechai. But Mordechai said, sorry, I only bow down before Hashem, before God. This got Haman so mad, he craved revenge not only on Mordechai, whom I guess he didn't realize was Esther's uncle, but all the Jews in the kingdom. So he drew lots. In fact, he drew lots and lots of lots, all lottery, to determine which day all the Jews in Persia should be annihilated. And by the way, the word Purim means lots in Old Persian. Well, it turned out that astrologically, the 14th of Adar was the most salubrious day. He actually looked in the horoscope in the Persian post. It said, you will make many short-time enemies. Don't mind them. It's a great day for a holocaust. However, your love life is still dormant and will remain so for some time. Don't wear purple. Anyway, Haman went to the king and told all these terrible lies about the Jews. Oi, they own the media. Oh, they have undue influence calling for a war with Mesopotamia. Oh, they're ruining Michael Jackson's career. All these horrible slanders which the king believed. His Highness, never turn, never one to turn down an opportunity for some bloodletting, went along with his advisor's plan for genocide. Mordechai heard this and went sugar, crying and screaming and tearing his clothes and warning all the Jews were going to die. Esther got wind of it and told him, Calm down. Tell everybody to fast for three days. Pray for me. Pray for all of us. She was nervous because a queen isn't allowed to summon a king. It's an offense punishable by, you got it, wife aside. But after the fast, Esther goes to the king and invites him to a big banquet. Typical man, he hears the word food and he's thrilled to be alive. So they have the feast and the king notices Mordechai there. So does Haman. The king is then reminded that Mordechai once saved his tuchus. So before evil Haman can ask the king to kill Mordechai, the king tells him to dress Mordechai like a royal hero and lead him through the streets in a parade. Gritting his teeth, Haman does what he's told. The next night, another banquet. And this time Esther says the magic words, Guess who married a Jew? You! And guess what else? There's a guy in your employ who wants to murder me and all my tribe. Who, said the king, the chief of Homeland Security? No, replied Esther, your closest advisor. You know his name. It starts with an H. It's not Hubert. It's Haman. Well, that did it for the haymaster. He was hung on the same gallows he had built for Mordechai. And all ten sons of Haman... All ten were hung. A couple were well hung, but that's something different. Mordechai was made prime minister and given a directive that the Jews could defend themselves against anyone who tried to vanquish them. It all happened on the 14th day of the month of Adar, Purim Day. A day the Jews could have been butchered, but instead were spared and celebrated. So Mordechai declared it an annual feast day, which over the years has come to include lots of drinking and wearing costumes and masks. Mordechai also started the custom of giving money to the poor and giving gifts of food and candy called Shalach Manas to our neighbors. 
That's why it's different from Halloween. The kids go door-to-door giving people treats rather than taking. No wonder they grow up cranky. But seriously, in the synagogue we read the story of Esther, called the Megillah, first word to last. We dance around, and as you've heard, make a tremendous amount of noise when we hear the name of that Megillah gorilla, Haman! It's to blot out his name, to erase him from our thoughts and from our history. Esther and Mordecai, however, are among the most beloved figures in Jewish lore, which lead me, leads me to this limerick. There once was a hero named Mordecai, an upstanding mensch and a sporty guy. His clever instruction saved Jews from destruction and gave them permission to fortify. And now, get your singing caps on. Time for a little music, a little tune I came up with. If you want to sing along or follow the words, they're on the website at hometown.aol.com forward slash Dave's Gone By. I love the title of this song, Don't Mess With Us. If you try to kill the Jews, here's a little piece of news. God will stop you and he'll drop you dead instead. He got Hitler, he got Haman, and a dozen I'm not naming, so don't mess with the Jews, cause you'll lose. If your aim is genocide, then you'd better run and hide, cause Hashem will turn the tide until you drown. Every exile and pogrom we've emerged triumphant from, cause the Lord is our sword and our drum. So if you're a neo-Nazi and you think you're hotsy-totsy, or you're blowing up civilians on a bus... You had best leave us alone, or we'll horror on your bones. You'll be stuck, chucks, or don't muck with us. So listen here, you goyim, every girl and every boyim. Anti-Semitism brings you only tears. Cause our Shem is in our corner, he will make your mama mourner. For the sake of your kids, be a friend to the yids. Trig us nice, trig us well, or you'll barbecue in hell. It's been like this for 5,000 years. If you're a big fan of Dave's Gone By, and God knows I am, why not join the Bystanders, the official Dave's Gone By fan club? You get a bi-monthly newsletter, a weekly email, an autographed membership card eligible for all kinds of bargains, plus a one-hour Best of Dave audio tape, which, damn it, I'd better be on, or I'll tell my congregation to watch The Simpsons instead. Anyway, it's $10 for everything, including the tape. A great deal. Join before the end of the year, and you get an autographed picture of Dave, which has a market value on eBay of about a dollar and a half. But wait a few years. So, make a $10 check or money order payable to Total Theater, and send it to Box 62, Ulet, New York, 11557-0062. You can also use PayPal to the email address davesgongby at aol.com. Treat yourself for the holidays. Do it today. Welcome back to the Sunday Purim Spiel here on Dave's Gone By. Dave will be back at the end of the show, but he's left me here to spread some joy, to celebrate this merry holiday with music and humor and my basic undercurrent of rage. No, I'm kidding. <clears throat> you can't get upset on Purim. It's a wonderful day. And it's a bigger deal in Eretz Yisrael than it is here. 
everyone gets into the spirit. A nice boy chick who was in Israel last Purim wrote on his website, it's a nationally celebrated party and everyone is invited. Indeed, it is not uncommon to see rabbits, angels and Harry Potters singing at the bus stop or wandering around the supermarket. Nor is it unusual to pass by wizards, policemen or monsters in the street without a second thought. At one carnival extravaganza, there were flamethrowers, singers and dancers, and I'm sure there were also the ultimate Jewish lifeline jokes. The year is 2015, and the situation is grim. The Earth's ozone layer has eroded to where the ice caps are melting, and the entire world is about to flood. All the major religions call enclaves on how to lead the people through the crisis. The Pope issues a statement that Catholics should write out a long confession and beg Jesus for salvation. The Protestant Church urges its followers to eat only vegetables and cleanse themselves for the final judgment. The Muslim clerics order their people to fast all day and pray from morning to night. The head rabbis argue for an hour and then they immediately start giving lessons on how to live underwater. That's what it's all about for us. Survival, belief, but pragmatism as well. Prayer and practicality. And I'm practically out of time here, so I want to wish you all a Purim Sameach, a glorious springtime. May we all have peace, or at least a great peace of Hamantashen. This is Rabbi Solomon saying, Shalom uvracha from every one of me to every one of you. Welcome back to the closing moments of Dave's Gone By for this week, Sunday, March 16th, our 24th episode. Hope you enjoyed our double salute to Purim and St. Patrick's Day. Maybe you even got to sing along by going to our website, hometown.aol.com forward slash Dave's Gone By. We've got the playlist there, plus details on how you can buy cassettes of shows you missed, going all the way back to the first one. Advertising and sponsorship information is also available, plus info on how to join the Bystanders Club. For only $10, you get a newsletter, weekly emails, autographed photo, and, best of all, a best-of audio tape. Again, check the website or email me at davesgoneby at aol.com, or snail mail, Dave's Gone By, P.O. Box 62, Hewlett, New York, 11557-0062. Even if you're not ready to join the club, I want to hear your comments and suggestions, because it's your support that keeps this program going. And uh, making it all happen, our station manager Joey, engineer Joe, engineer Paul, Rabbi Saul Solomon, of course, Scott Rogolitz, the guitarist and co-vocalist on Covered with Crap, the Sailor Song, and thank you to my wife, Joyce, as always, for being my companion, my guiding light, and for encouraging me to do the meat wad dance whenever I safely can. And speaking of food, thank you, Bonnie, for the hamantashen. Thanks to some other good people on WGBB for promoting this program, folks like Bonnie D. Graham, host of Long Island's Dating, Fridays at 6. Don Lewis, host of Entertainment Long Island, Saturdays at 5.30. Joe Salzone Live, political talk, Saturday nights at 7.30. Mike Artsis, uh, he's got a couple of late night shows in the middle of the week. They're still working the times out on those, but he was kind enough to have me on as a co-host for a special he did last Sunday night. Great fun. So listen for Mike, he's all over the station and has quite the gift of gab, and I'll be taking... 
uh, the 10 to 11 slot of his Midnight Madness tonight. So uh, stay tuned to WGBB or, or flip back here at 10 because I'll be there. And also, Teen America, Romance, Rank Outs, and Rapid Fire Sunday nights at 6.30. Um, as always, it was a treat for me to be here, and I'll do it again next week, Sunday night, 7.30 on WGBB AM 1240, and live on the net at WGBB.com. Until then, don't miss your days going by. This is Dave Lefkowitz. Good night. Don't drink and drive. Drink, then drive. And gone by. <laughs>